1: Hey there, we'll be back with a new episode for you next week. In the meantime, we're sharing one of our favorites from the archive in case you missed it the first time around. Enjoy.
2: I mean, I remember we left this really big mansion that we were working at and I had knocked over some China or something and broke this like two dishes in this customer's home, right? And he was livid because it was like a dumb mistake too, was not And we were driving home that night in the van and he was definitely giving me his two cents about how I'm going to amount to nothing and that he should fire me and all these things and how many times can I keep screwing up? And I started crying. And that was just this like moment that I'll never forget because it was a little bit of a turning point where I just said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to him? You're going to keep doing this or are you going to figure it out? And so, I don't know. I think... A lot of things happened that pushed me, but he was definitely a big instrument in that. And also, there was this part of me that wanted to prove a lot of people wrong at that point, too.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to designer, illustrator, and author Timothy Goodman. Timothy Goodman started off a little lost in Cleveland, but eventually found his way to studying graphic design at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. After stints at Simon & Schuster, the branding and design firm Collins, and Apple, he turned his side hustles into his full-time front hustle. He's well-known for his illustrations and murals. You've probably seen his work on the walls of the Ace Hotel or on the cover of Time magazine. Or maybe you've read his book, Sharpie Art Workshop. Or maybe you've seen his custom notebooks for Moo or his hoodies for Uniqlo.
1: Remember 40 Days of Dating? That was a social experiment he conducted with friend and collaborator Jessica Walsh, which went viral and resulted in a blog and a book. Their second experiment, 12 Kinds of Kindness, which included the Build Kindness Not Walls lineup in front of Trump Tower, was featured in the New York Times and on NPR. He's also a speaker, a teacher, and an outspoken advocate for inclusion. Endless talent, interesting guy. Let's talk to Timothy.
2: My name is Timothy Goodman. I'm a New York City-based designer and illustrator. My grandma calls me an artist, so I'll take that. And the reason I do what I do is, at the end of the day, I really want to connect to people. And I want to tell stories and share the human emotion and vulnerability in our lives and our work. And yeah, to connect to people.
0: That's beautiful. I love it. So I would like to go back to little Timothy in the beginning. So can you paint the picture of your childhood for us? I know you grew up in Cleveland. So what was that like? What kind of a kid were you? What was your family like?
2: Yeah. So little Timmy, little (laughs) Timothy was only when my mother was angry at me, which she screamed Timothy. Uh, (laughs) I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I grew up in an all black neighborhood until I was about 12 or 13. And so that was a really amazing experience to predominantly be the only white person in an all black neighborhood with people of color. And, and, and having that experience really shaped my entire viewpoint on the world. And so that was something that was really instrumental in even just today making the work I make and something that is really kind of important to me to have that experience. As a kid, I was looking to get into trouble, really. Um, and me and my friends were always scheming something. This one old guy used to call me a dead-end kid. I guess there were these, these like 1930s movies with these kids that would like smoke cigarettes and had like a newspaper out and had like dirt on their face, and he would always call me a dead-end kid. So that was, yeah, my early years, I think, just kind of getting in trouble, having fun, just trying to have fun as much as possible. All the way up until high school, and then I realized I'm barely going to graduate, and I can't even get into a state school for college. And so at that moment, I kind of had a a big, as they say, come to Jesus. (laughs) So I had to kind of figure out a lot of things at that point. But up until then, a lot of fun.
1: Well, let's talk about that. I want to know about the rebellious teenage years when you had your come to Jesus. What did you figure out? So... I graduated again, barely graduating,
2: and I couldn't get into a state school, nor did I even want to go to college. It just wasn't for me at the time, but I didn't know what I was going to do, and I was scared and I was nervous and I didn't have money, my family didn't have money, I, like I had to work and I had to figure something out and I started working for this this man named Dave who ran a home improvement company in Cleveland, and I was like a kind of an assistant at first, an apprentice making like eight dollars an hour and I worked for this man for. Four years up until I was about 22. The first two years were pretty rough. I was still not interested in any responsibility. Every weekend, I was like coming in with some new experience of partying and doing drugs and stuff. And he was really harsh on me and he was really deliberate about helping me and teaching me a lot of things, not just about the work I was doing for him, but about life. I grew up with, you know, in a single uh, parent household with no father. My mom was an amazing woman and taught me how to love, but she can only do so much with three kids and me being kind of wild. I think that I needed someone. He was the first person ever in my life to be like, you're fucking up and you're doing this and why are you like this? And he kind of really pushed me in a lot of ways to look at myself in the mirror and he should have fired me many times over and he didn't. And through that whole experience... He became this kind of like life mentor for me. And we worked in these beautiful homes, million, $2 million homes in Cleveland, Ohio. He had a really great business, really great company and great clients. And through that experience, I really learned the trade and became really good at it from hanging wallpaper to making walls look like Venetian plaster, faux finishing. I went to faux finishing classes and stuff. He became like a dad in a lot of ways and I'm still very close to him. So he was kind of my coming to Jesus In a lot of ways and he kind of indirectly inspired me to have the audacity to say i want to go to art school i want to move to a big city like new york i want to chase my dreams or whatever and so i'll forever be kind of grateful to him for that even though he also didn't think it was possible too and that was part of my motivation (laughs) he kind of said i had kool-aid dreams and why would you move to new york and spend all this money and he also was he was he was pretty colorful with his opinions, to say <laughs> the least, so that inspired me as well.
1: You said the first few years were really harsh because, I mean, he, he put you through the ringer, but you're also on a learning curve. You have to learn how to do all these things. And I know from personal experience, it's hard work. It's hard exacting detail-oriented work that's really satisfying, but...
2: But it's also labor-intensive. It's, I mean, the stuff I was labor-intensive, doing...
1: Yeah. I still
2: think about that today when we talk about design or any of us want to complain about whatever. And I complain too. I mean, it's just, but it's like we're in this really amazing service industry to be doing what we're doing. Like I remember like hauling buckets of wallpaper glue up ladders for like 12, 13 hours a day. And that sucked. I feel so grateful and lucky to be doing what I'm doing now. And so it really gave me perspective on a lot of things because worked with so many really awesome guys through those four years that were like foremen that worked for dave and various people like just so many characters i mean mm-hmm. it was just like you could write a you could write a sitcom about it mm-hmm. but just seeing all that kind of stuff really opened my eyes to a lot of things but yeah for the first couple of years he put me through the ringer because i wasn't doing good he used to say all these like really poignant colorful sayings like sometimes he would take me to go meet clients to like bid a job first before and if he saw me with my hands in my pockets he would slap my hands and say, Take your hands out of your pockets, a sign of laziness. Oh. He would have all these kind of like early bird gets the worm, always wake up at six AM and like it's work. Like he had all these kind of like funny idioms about how you should live your life and he wasn't shy about them <laughs> towards me.
1: So if you're this like scrappy kid who's like really interested in screwing around, this work is hard and this guy is hard on you. What do you think compelled you to stay?
2: I think it was just the question of like, what the hell am I going to do with my life for real? And like,
1: at some point I knew
2: that wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And I felt a little trapped by it because I was also in debt and I had to pay off like the, like I had lost my license because I had like 12 points suspension and I was just constantly getting in trouble. It just came to this point where it was just like, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. But like, I don't have anything else going on. Mm -hmm. So why not just try to get real good at this? Like, Why not try to, what would happen if I lost all my friends who were no good for me and stopped doing all these things and really just tried to excel at something? And that wasn't like I woke up one day and decided, but it was definitely like over a course of some time where I just started to get really serious about it.
1: Do you think a part of you also was grateful for the interest that Dave was taking in you? And the structure he was giving you?
2: Oh, no. Like, it was hard, but I had never had a relationship like that. Yeah. And so he definitely didn't give up on me, even though he would make me suffer for Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember we left this really big mansion that we were working at, and I had knocked over some china or something and broke this, like, two dishes in this customer's home, right? And he was livid because it was like a dumb mistake too. It wasn't. And we were driving home that night in the van and he was definitely giving me his two cents about how I'm going to amount to nothing and that he should fire me and all these things. And how many times can I keep screwing up? And I started crying. And that was just this like moment that I'll never forget because it was a little bit of a turning point where I just said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to him? You're going to keep doing this or are you going to figure it out? And so I don't know. I think, A lot of things happened Mm -hmm. that pushed me, but he was definitely a big instrument in that. And also there was this part of me that wanted to prove a lot of people wrong at that point too.
1: Yeah. It sounds like Mm -hmm. a powerful combination of somebody (laughs) who (laughs) believes in you and then you sort of also needing to like, not only just prove them right, but also exceed their expectations and prove them wrong at the same time.
2: Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot I learned about it in therapy. Trust me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I believe
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> but also with my whole family and everything. And I don't know. I mean, everything we do, right, is like a reaction to something that happened to us in our childhood. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, we're either reacting to it or responding to it, and somehow we're trying to change the behavior of it. Like, it's just all in reaction
1: to the those damn formative years. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, at some point, you ended up going to community college. And so you made that decision. It was during that whole kind of, yeah, that I decided, A, I'm
2: going to try to be really good at this and try to make more money at this and try to succeed. And then I'm going to go to school and see if I can better myself that way, too, and see just like what happens. And I started going to school full time and working full time. So I was going to school at nights and all weekends at the community college. And then I was working full time for Dave. And through that process, I had some really amazing teachers. I thought I wanted to do interior design at first, just because we worked in these really beautiful homes and Dave had a degree in interior design and he helped a lot of clients with that kind of stuff as well. So I thought maybe that was something I wanted to do. So I started taking interior design classes and then they were like, obviously, if you need to get a degree or even to graduate community college to get associates, You'd have to take English and math and start doing that kind of thing. And I'd have to take drawing classes. And it was through some of the the drawing classes and the life drawing and the sculpture classes that I had to take as kind of prereqs that I just had these amazing teachers. And I found that I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought it was bad to enjoy it because there was like, well, what am I going to do with like drawing, you know, what? <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do with any of this stuff? And so it was interesting. I just really enjoyed it. And I had these teachers that tell me, why are you going don't go on interior design? That's not what you want to do. You're super expressive. You're open to a lot of things. And then so my, my teacher, Jackie Freeman, who's this amazing teacher, she told me to think about graphic design. Mm. Then I thought, well, oh, maybe I'll try that. So I went to school full time in two years or two and a half years at community college at Tri-C.
0: And so during the time in community college, you also applied for scholarships at some point and decided to make that move to New York City that you had talked to Dave about previously to go to the School of Visual Arts. Is that kind of like the point where you started to really feel like you had some direction and you kind of knew like what you wanted to do?
2: Yeah, at some point I got really determined, like at some point when I was like halfway through community college maybe it was just after a year i feel like after that first year i felt like you know what you know part of my french but fuck everyone like i can try to do anything i want to do right like if i can make it happen if i can try to get money i can do anything is possible if i can try to if i can really work hard to make this happen and yeah i'm like older now i'm like you know i'll be like 22 23 by the time i go to, go to new york go to school but like So what? Like all my friends are graduating right now and they still don't know what they want to do. Like everyone who went to Ohio State and OU, like they don't know what they want. So like what? What's the worst that could happen? I want to get on this adventure. So I started, you know, figuring out I started working with SBA, like what would I have to do? Could I bypass a year? Could I get there as a sophomore? What classes I would need to take? So for like a year and a half before I actually went, I was working with them in tandem to kind of like figure out what classes I would need to take that could transfer over, what I would need to learn so I could save that much money. Because again, no one's going to be able to pay for this. And I had to figure it all out. And so during that process, I, I bought this book, How to Go to College for Free, which is <laughs> so, which is totally corny. But like that this guy, Ben Kaplan, who wrote this book, changed my whole life the whole premise of the book is just like learn to write about yourself learn to write about yourself so you can tell your story in a way that can differentiate yourself from the next person because thousands of people are applying to this to so learn how to tell your story in an interesting way and also how to find scholarships there's so many scholarships out there that people don't know about through private institutions through your bank so on and so forth i was seeking out all these scholarships that maybe people didn't know about finding them and applying to them I applied to over a hundred scholarships
1: oh wow
2: um I think I won about eight or nine of them and yeah then when I got to SBA, I like worked to be an RA I was just constantly trying to figure out ways that kind of lightened the financial blow of it all
1: well it sounds like being a dead ed kid also taught you a few hustling skills because exactly
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm still hustling yeah there's two things that really bookend a lot where I'm at now during that process: the scholarships and all the writing, because I realized how much I did like writing and how important it was to tell your story. And so, so much of the work I do now, it ha- whether it's a personal project, I can do that have a lot of writing, or a lot of just like my murals and stuff are all authored by me. A lot of the stuff I write on Instagram. That process I learned, like, wow, this is something I really enjoy and I want to do more of. And through that process of working for Dave and doing all that, like bookends a lot where I'm doing. I realized and I didn't know till I started doing murals that, oh, wow, this I really love the physicality of working with my hands. And it ties back into even when I'm on some of these jobs now. Sometimes if I do something big for like a corporation where there's crews of painters and drywall people there and I talked like I'm, it's like I'm back
1: yeah, you yeah, identify with them. Oh yeah, <laughs> like those are my people. And I know it,
2: exactly, and it's and but just the whole physicality of doing it all. I didn't know, but I really enjoy it, and so I know how to like navigate that whole part of things. So
1: isn't it funny? I bet a lot of the, those years with Dave actually really did set you up for doing murals as part yeah. of your work, but also having an appreciation for all the details and and all the moving parts that have to come together. Exactly. And I think that
2: maybe why I've taken on this work more and gotten much better at it and, and been so passionate about it. Back then I didn't know, but I saw how like how you can redefine a space, on how you can change the experience of a space by whatever you're doing whether it's paint or wallpaper, but now me putting my art on walls and my words and my drawings And how that changes, and also how like people find joy in that. Someone's like in front of one of my murals, and they smile, or they look for things, and they take selfies in front of it. Mm -hmm. That's how people. When I think of like back then, when I think of like the homeowner coming home and seeing her whole house painted or wallpaper, and how happy she was
0: to be in that space. Yeah, you can kind of see how your work affects other people. Yeah, it's interesting to think like
2: how that changes your mood and your experience, given what's on the walls around you.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah, that's something we talk about all the time. I also think that when we're talking about the built world, you're creating atmosphere, messaging, mood, Mm -hmm. and having all that influence, but in a different way than we think about in terms of decorating for residential purposes. But it's the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of connection and relationship you're developing with the viewer.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I think so. I mean, I think there's definitely similarities because you are having some sort of conversation with the, Mm -hmm. with the person who is in front of it and you're tapping into something perhaps emotionally or, yeah, I think there's a lot there.
0: Yeah. I think it's cool too. Like when you do somebody's house, let's say you wallpaper it or faux finish or whatever, you're doing it for this one person. It's the space that this one person will enjoy, but what you do now, so many people can enjoy. You could walk by it on the street, or you can walk into a building and see it, or you could see it online. So you have so many ways to affect so many people, too.
2: Yeah, and that's what I really enjoy out of it. I truly find so much joy, in the, especially like the in person thing. When I'm doing it, whether it's on the street or for a client, when them having that first encounter of, like, oh my God, like, and wanting to take pictures in front of it and wanting to, find new things in it. Half of my murals are this sort of freestyle thing I do which is a combination of objects and words but then the other half is like these big type kind of things that I write and the messaging and the authoring behind it and what I want to say is important because I'm just speaking directly to someone. I just find a lot of joy in that process and it's funny now because I have done some murals for people residential like in people's homes I've done maybe three mm. in the last year and a half. Shout out to those rich people who kind of pay me yeah. to do some girls <laughs> in their kitchens. Shout out! <laughs> but that really brings it back full circle, where I'm like, right. wow, I'm like, I'm like, here I am again, like in <laughs> someone's home, putting something on the walls here.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, yeah,
2: it's it's pretty interesting.
0: Dave should feel pretty proud too. <laughs>
2: Now he is. And I make sure to give him anything I do. I always have to send it to
0: him. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
1: To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you
0: there. So you're at SVA and you're doing graphic design and I assume you graduate and then what?
2: I was graduating and... I was super nervous and anxiety ridden because I felt like if I don't figure something out I'm gonna I'm gonna have to move back to Cleveland and paint homes and I didn't want to do that I think it was through a series of circumstances that I met this guy John Fulbrook who was a creative director at Simon & Schuster for Book Jackets and he was a teacher at SVA and I kind of liked his energy I had met him when I was a junior and I kind of was constantly kind of going back and forth, like emailing him, saying, consider me for an internship, whatever. And so when I graduated, I think he had an open slot. And he was like, listen, if you want to come and like a junior designer slot, you know, it's interesting because like, I mean, this was 2007, 2008. And so I think book jackets and doing that kind of thing is obviously that industry publishing has changed a lot since then. Mm -hmm. But I didn't care about working on book jackets. I just really wanted to work for John. I just liked his energy. I felt like you'd be a good mentor. It goes back to that mentor thing and me always kind of looking for people I can learn from. I felt like that would help me a lot. I needed someone to learn from and who would give me their time. I teach at SVA now and I always tell my students, when you're graduating, it's not so much about where you want to work, but like who you want to work for in the beginning and find mentors and find people that can teach you because that's really, obviously that's really important early on in your career to kind of have that support. And so I felt like he would, he would be that person for me. And I, and I, I took a little bit of a gamble because I think I had some other job offers that were, in branding and would offer me more money and this one wasn't this was publishing and it was a junior you know there was no money involved (laughs) and so um but I decided to do it and yeah it was a great experience um and I worked with him there for a year
1: oh cool and then you went to an agency correct
2: yeah I went to go work for Brian Collins he was just starting Collins at the time because John went to go work for him and then he kind of got me to come along and so yeah I worked I worked for Brian for about two two and a half years
1: and was Brian Collins also was it that mentor pull for you yes okay
2: very much I didn't know that going into it actually because I was kind of going with John but Brian turned out to be my biggest champions and someone who uh, gave me so much opportunity and so much support and time and he's just kind of He's a wild genius and he kind of really kind of indirectly inspired me in so many ways. Just kind of seeing how he operated and the kind of work that he always pushed and strived to do and to think out of the box in so many ways. And so that was really imperative. And he's also one of the first people to like, I mean, I am still only a couple of years out of school, but he saw that I was trying. I was doing a lot of freelance on the side and he didn't care about that. He wanted me to do that stuff. He wasn't threatened by it or, he, oh, you should only be working on stuff for me.
1: Oh, isn't that nice? Somebody who actually wants you to grow and evolve yeah. as an artist and a yeah. person and doesn't treat you like a proprietary, like sort of piece of property. It was amazing.
2: Property? Wow. No, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. And at that time I'd started doing when I started working for him, I started doing uh, New York Times illustrations and different editorial illustrations for places like Newsweek and Wired magazine and stuff like that, and like small little op-ed pieces and stuff. And he knew all that and he to do it. And you know, and through that process, he understood that like I was trying a lot of styles with those things. And for me, it was just about ideas and like, okay, if I have to read this piece and I have like four hours to get it sketched to the art director. I have to act fast, I have to get better at making images quicker, I have to get better with my ideas, I have to be up on current events and politics so I can respond to this stuff quicker, but it was really kind of this amazing practice for me to make a lot of things in a short amount of time, and that really propelled me to kind of, I think, come out the other end saying like, Oh, I like these things and I don't like doing this and I like doing this and that stuff. And I, and that's something that I always tell a lot, a lot of young designers and students. It's just like to make a lot of stuff is really important because you you figure out what you don't want, what you do want, what you like, what you're good at, what you're not good at.
1: Yeah. And just that practice of overcoming inertia and fear, too, is also good.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I would say you have to make a lot of stuff to make stuff like yourself. You just have to go through that practice in that period of just trying a lot of things. Let me take a little bit from this person, a little bit from this person, let me try this, let me try that. And then you kind of eventually, you know, if you're doing it in a, in a sincere way, you get to a place where you kind of create your own language and your own kind of voice through that.
0: Yeah. And I think you can't really be afraid to make stuff that's bad.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <For laughs> because that's sure. the
0: only way you're going to stumble upon something that's really great.
2: And that was what was good for me back then too. We were a small team back then. There were like five of us creative people and I was the youngest and I was just making stuff. I'd never done anything like that. It was branding. We had to make a lot of stuff. We had to do it fast. They'd say, like, no, you throw spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. But like, it's just like making all kinds of good stuff, bad stuff, whatever, just kind of putting it up on the board and seeing what works.
0: So, what are some of the gigs that you've gotten or the projects that you've done over the years that you feel like cemented you as who you are?
2: So, it was right when I was leaving Brian to go. I went to San Francisco to work for Apple for one year. I mean, I didn't know if it was going to be one year, but that's just what it turned out to be. It was right at that moment that I got this opportunity to do my first mural at the Ace Hotel in New York City. And this is back in 2011. And so, I'd never done anything like that, obviously. I'd never even like drawn like that, really. I just decided to draw it by hand with paint markers because that was just kind of the idea that I had. I wanted to draw hundred frames about everything I loved about New York city that could be passed to the common tourist staying in this hotel room, you know, like your favorite burger spot or here's statistics about New York. Here's where you should get a good milkshake or beer or whatever. And so I drew all these frames and I locked myself in this room for like three days. And I was, I think by the end of it, I was, I was crying cause I didn't think I was going to finish it. I didn't think it was any good. And I was so physically and kind of emotionally drained from yeah. And it's funny because like that mural, like now I would do something like that in about six hours or something. <laughs> I had never felt more vindicated. Like I was so stimulated by that whole process. I had never felt so alive while doing something because there was so much anxiety in it as well. And like, can I do this? And, but I also did like it. And I felt I was touching on something that I'd never done before. I mean, I just went to school as a traditional graphic designer I never really drawn like that or anything. So I think when I walked out of that place, I was like, I would love to do more of that. I didn't think it was possible. Yeah. And then I got some good play on some blogs and kind of got around a little bit, which was really cool. But I still had a full-time job at that point. So it was kind of put on hold for a while. And then I kind of got a couple like magazine new york magazine they asked me to do something in a similar style for like a full page illustration and then one thing kind of led to another where i started getting asked to do that a little bit more and more on the side and so obviously yeah that was a paramount project to have there's a couple of things i did like a time magazine cover just like a year after that that was really awesome to do obviously because it was like time magazine yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't say that it was like pushing anything in terms of where I want to go with my work, but it was just like obviously that was a cement statement to be like, wow, I just this happened. Mm-hmm. Forty days of dating in two thousand thirteen was a project that I did with Jessica Walsh.
1: Yeah, talk <laughs> about connection and storytelling.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I went to Apple in two thousand ten or something in two thousand eleven, and then I I left after a year to move back to New York. To work for myself because at that point i started getting asked to do a lot more freelance and i said i can at least pay my rent i'm going to take this risk and and go through with this and so upon that doing that and trying to get corporate jobs where i started doing a little bit more mural work and stuff it was also important for me now that i was kind of working for myself to take more time to do these personal projects because i really wanted to do that and so i did a couple small little things that first year and then me and jessica collaborated we came up with this crazy idea to do forty days of dating, and really just came from that question of why. Like at the time, she was a serial monogamist, constantly getting her heart broken. I was just like person who could never settle down and was dating too many people at the same time, and just was like, "What? What am I? Like, I feel so unhealthy with everything. Like, why can't I be settled a little more?" And we were good friends, and we would always make fun of each other for these constant kind of behavioral issues, and so we were like, what would happen if we quote unquote dated each other as a way to kind of explore on these, these issues of ours and use ourselves as a catalyst to kind of learn more potentially, and maybe change in some way. And so I think through that project and doing that, obviously it took off and went viral, which was really exciting and really scary at the same time.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering how you feel about using yourself As an experiment like that, like, so now you're not just experimenting with different types of work. You're now injecting yourself, your issues, your personality, and experimenting with it in a public format. And it's also, it's very performative in a way. Is that something Mm -hmm. that you gravitate towards? How did that affect you?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's, there's two parts to that conversation. I think how it affected me then versus how I feel about it now are different, obviously. Sure, sure. But at the time, I don't think I was quite ready. I thought I was ready for it, but I don't think I didn't realize the effects it would have until after the project. I think Jessica went through a little bit more during the project. I mean, and when I say during, I mean, we did the experiment first and we documented it and then we kind of put it together as a website and we released it a couple of months later after doing it. Mm. We released it that whole summer daily. So it was a sort of web reality kind of thing, but it wasn't live. So it was interesting to kind of see how that we kind of had to relive the experience with like with people watching, and we didn't know. It's always so funny. I think you know people, I hear people like, oh, they did this so you know they could get famous or whatever, and it's like I thought like a an ex girlfriend and my mom would read it like legitimately like like <laughs> I, 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 we're not like trend forecasters. I don't know what's gonna like, and so it was interesting because you just like. I had just, it was just, it became absurd. I mean, I think at one point there were 300,000 people reading it every day. We've had over like 15 million unique visitors, to the website or whatever. So it was just like, it got so big. You know, that yeah. was scary when you're like getting stopped all over New York from just random people where I'm in like an airport in Minnesota and people are stopping me. It was like weird.
1: I think that project really touched a certain zeitgeist too, where yeah, yeah. In yeah, the yeah. dating world, people were starting to feel more isolated. It was now more about dating apps and hookups, and people were yeah. really struggling to find connection. And we were also struggling to wrap our heads around and language around our own emotional issues. And
2: yeah, I think we did that pre pre-tender, maybe oh, in pre-tender, yeah.
1: Interesting.
2: And it's also interesting because like I don't know I don't think that project would take off the same way now, given how social media has changed everything, even just in the last four years. I mean, even when you think about like Twitter threads and stuff, and I, I write pl- plenty of Twitter threads and like, I mean, even you see how people's lifestyle blogs and stuff like aren't as popular as they once worse. Cause like, I want to follow it on Instagram. I want to follow your stories. I want to follow your threads. I don't want to have to go to like a website to read. I just, I find it interesting cause it is a lot about like when you do things. And the environment around, the landscape that's happening around you
1: at the time. Absolutely. So you've had a long and impressive career with many different types of projects, many prestigious awards, different types of clients. I would like to hear you break down a recent project for us. Maybe you can describe the project itself, the relationship between you and the client, and then the working relationship, all of that.
2: So there's a couple of different things that I've done recently that I'm super excited about. First and foremost, I did this really cool notebook for Moo. I recently partnered and did this with them to create a custom hardcover notebook. And so I was super excited about that just because like I'd always used Moo for a long time. So when it came to me, I was like, for sure. And. So I did this whole theme about, like, meetings kill creativity. That's, like, the kind of message on the front of the cover.
1: Still starting shit, aren't you?
2: (laughs) I know, I know. And I just love the idea that, like, obviously so many people are going to be using this notebook in meetings. And so (laughs) I just wanted to kind of... Fight back with my trolling
0: (laughs) meetings. I know,
2: right? I just kind of wanted to fight back with the art a little bit, and they were so amazing, just because like they just let they were down with it. But like, P.S. Like, obviously, I I work for myself. I run my own business. I have to be in tons of meetings. You know, as a creative person, I love them, but as a business owner, I have to be in them. So I understand the struggle. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of fun, and we were able to customize the whole notebook did this like kind of 16 page interior of like all yellow pages with like another piece of artwork in the middle. Like Todd has this like lay flat, flat binding and all kinds of little like extras throughout the whole piece. So that was a lot of fun.
1: Nice. So one of the things that you've developed as a superpower is your commentary on culture and current events. And so that's, that's your artistic voice. That's also you empowering yourself to have a voice to to compel yourself to say something Mm -hmm. and i am wondering how that starts in your body and and germinates and becomes something that you need to express
2: well i think there's a couple things from a strictly creative and formal point of view i just have a strong urge to want to make a lot of stuff. And I think a lot of the stuff that I write and put out, like, you know, on Instagram, for instance, I make art pretty much specifically for Instagram. I have kind of like two different um, series that, that I have something called Memories of Girl I Never Knew, which is kind of an ongoing vignette series that I write about past relationship failures and fuck ups and all that, and, you know, and vulnerability. And then I have this other thing, which is kind of tongue in cheek, just called Insta therapy, which I write out these sayings and or sometimes they're more poetic sometimes they're very blunt and so i'll just write them out and post them like from a creative point of view it's just kind of me practicing it's like me shooting free throws before a game or whatever or me just kind of like with my saxophone just jamming before a concert or something like it's not meant for like anything else but to just kind of Throw stuff against the wall sometimes, not in the name of being provocative or anything, but just to really want have the urge to just share work and say something that matters to me. Mm-hmm. So it's been amazing to kind of do that because you also learn that as a creative person, as an artist, an illustrator, designer, all your work has consequences, right? And like everything you do is inherently political, no matter how you want to slice it. And so it's been important for me. To say something, to have a voice, especially as my platform has grown over the years, over the last two or three years specifically, and the audience I have now, especially on Instagram, to talk about topics that are hard to talk about, to challenge people about their privileges and challenge myself about this as I'm learning it, and to have these dialogues and these conversations and challenge my audience about these things, because at the end of the day, like my friend Akilo, always says, like, we're not going to be young and cute forever. Like we have to say something, you know, and like while I'm, you know, quote unquote relevant, I want to say something relevant. I'm not just in this to make a little money and like do some work. I have a platform. I'm going to use it and I'm going to talk about these things.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. We can tell that you're really outspoken about inclusion and about you're self-aware about your position and You're just self-aware about society in general. And I want to know, what are some of the personal and professional ways that you advocate for inclusion?
2: Well, there's a couple of things. If I write something like, you know, um, know, if I write something that challenges white guys about their privileges or something, even if I just write it out and post on Instagram, it's still something that I'm sharing with the audience. Is still something that I'm hopefully having a conversation about something with people. Another thing is like me and my friend Amelie Lamont, we just we recently created something called People of Craft a couple months ago that we launched, which is essentially just like a showcase, a database of people of color all over the place that do amazing kinds of work in the creative design industry. And so it's just a place that kind of like house all these amazing people and their work. And so it's a very simple website. You just go and you see a piece of work and you can click on their website or their Instagram handle. She and I have had a lot of conversations, Amelie and I over the last year, year and a half. She's a black woman. We've been on panels together talking about these topics. And so we were like, well, let's stop talking about it and let's make something that can help people. And so that was really important. We got it off the ground with like 400 people on the website And so we're about to kind of relaunch with another 400. So that's exciting just to kind of use that as a resource for people.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you for doing that. Yeah.
2: Me and Jessica, our second social experiment we did called 12 kinds of kindness was a little self-serving in the sense of like, it was about us and, and our own apathy and things that we wanted to conquer in our, but at the same time, it was Again, I think that sharing stories is the sort of activism. And so I think that for that project, like we did all kinds of things. I met my biological father for the first time in my life. She tackled all kinds of things like struggles with mental illness and stuff like that. And so, wow. Yeah. So, and and then step 12 of that project, we did a a Trump Tower protest. This is back in March of 2016 before he was elected, which was kind of a very exhilarating experience to do.
1: Build kindness, not walls, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Love that. So yeah, it's been important to kind of do it in a lot of ways. I just think that, you know, anybody with a platform, obviously you're not legally bound to do anything you don't want to, but I just always find it really interesting, like why you're not, if you're not. Like, I don't say any of it to be preachy because it really comes from a place of me messing up in the past. And I think that's important too. It's just like, as we grow I think you have to be willing to look yourself in the mirror and you also have to be willing to listen to people when they call you out, specifically when a person of color calls you out or a woman calls you out for doing problematic things, even if it's not a big deal in your eyes, or even if other people from those communities don't think it's a big deal. If someone does, you know, it's important that you listen and you try to do better next time. I just see a lot, a lot of that not happening still. And I think it's disappointing. People naturally get defensive and that's okay, but you have to listen and you have to be willing to have those conversations. Sometimes, as my friend Amelie says, sometimes it takes a white, cis, straight man to call out another white, cis, straight man Mm -hmm. and for them to listen, unfortunately.
1: When I was doing research, I read somewhere that you'll even ask when you're invited to be on a panel, you'll ask who else is on the panel and if enough women and people of color are represented
2: yeah and again, I think that so much of this has to come from quote unquote like the influencers or the people that are being asked to be on stuff because I just think that like curators are sometimes lazy about stuff, and I think that they're also under a lot of pressure to get things done, fulfill slots and stuff, and they're not thinking and it's just like who do we just get because we know the names or I mean, who's gonna fill up seats or who's gonna listen or whatever, and it's important that. It starts from the inside out. Sometimes, like the people who are being asked to be on a podcast or be on a a panel, like we need to start asking these questions and challenging these people who are asking us. And so, yeah, it's been something that I've been doing a lot. I've turned things down. I've threatened to pull out, and I stay I stay true to it. I try to as much as possible because it's just it's just fascinating to me, even just from the point of view of like listening to people's stories and textures. It's like. How many times can we just like hear the same story? Mm-hmm. I hope more people do it. My goal with talking about a lot of this stuff is to spark that in other white dudes. They need to start thinking about that and asking those questions and challenging the people who are hiring them or bringing them on things. So, like I want to see more of that because it's not wow. happening enough, clearly.
0: Here, here. Well, thank you. So besides the inclusion project that you have Going on, I was going to ask what else you have. You have a lot of projects all the time. Is there anything in particular coming out or coming down the pike that you want to share?
2: Well, obviously the Moo project was amazing and big. That notebook. Also, I just launched a Uniglow collection that I'm super excited about. I've been working with them for a long time on this. It, it has like 30 different pieces. It's like a unisex, women's, kids, t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags. Oh, fun. What was fun about that project was a lot of it is my Instagram writing and stuff I've done like that, like kind of the more just text based stuff that's being launched globally over the next month or so. I'm excited about that.
1: I want to finish this up with a kind of personal existential question. I want you to fast forward to old age and (laughs) (laughs) imagine yourself as an old man. How do you picture yourself and how do you think you'll be spending most of your time?
2: Oh man. Myself as an old man, I am still going to be watching basketball a lot and just like trying to go to the gym, but always failing
0: <laughs>
2: and eating cereal still. Cause I love cereal. I think I'm still going to just want to be open and I think flexible with how, It's been interesting, like for me, it's never about what I'm making, but what I'm saying. And so as long as I feel like I'm still contributing something that is inherently valuable to someone or myself, and I'm still asking those difficult questions of myself and other people, and I'm still interested and curious about my own vulnerability and making work around that, then I think I'm good no matter what form that takes, whether it's a mural or a piece of writing, or a social experiment, um, or being a mentor. I've been a mentor of Big Brothers Big Sisters for this awesome.
1: And how do you feel about mentorship, being the mentor as opposed to the mentee side of it?
2: I think that when you're in a position to help someone, there's nothing more amazing to me than that.
0: Yeah, I agree. So can you tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and your work? You mentioned you had an Instagram. Can you share the handle?
2: You can go to my Instagram, which is just at Timothy Goodman. My Instagram has a lot of my new work. I constantly kind of update it with different writings and stuff and some some selfies in there as well. And then my website at tgoodman.com and uh, my Twitter, which is Timothy O. Goodman, Oh, for my middle name, Owen, because some dude took Timothy Goodman and hasn't tweeted in four years. But mm. whatever. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, if you're interested in buying the limited edition Moo notebook, you can find that online pretty easily. You can find my Univillow collection pretty easily online, just Googling or anything else.
1: Well, you turned out to be so much more than a dead end kid.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm, tr- I'm still trying.
1: This has been really awesome. Thank you so much for for sharing all your stories with us and and being so candid. We really
0: appreciate it.
2: It's been wonderful to meet you too. And thank you for having me on this.
0: I'm honored. Bye-bye. Well, I think having listened to him, you know, you forget how important mentors are. You don't always go out looking for a mentor a lot of times you don't even realize somebody was a mentor until maybe years later like if you look back and think oh god like that person was so critical in changing the way I thought about something or helping me get on the right path I think we just forget like how important that relationship is
1: I didn't really seek it out I guess I did because I went to school so much and so all teachers are mentors of a certain kind but hmm I really was impressed by the way he chose his jobs based on who he wanted to work with. I think that's kind of a key lesson there. He worked for people that he thought he could learn from and that he thought he could have a good relationship with or that he thought, you know, saw something in him that would inspire him to push himself. Because what he said made such an impression on me because those mentors are mentors for life. Those are allies Mm -hmm. you can take with you, whether you work for them or not, as long as you don't burn any bridges— you've got these people in your court, especially when you're a creative and people kind of don't know how to wrap their minds around you and you're forging a path that kind of doesn't exist already. It's not like you show real promise on the basketball court. It's like, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but more power to you
0: right (laughs) no I think you're right I think too like having those people in your court is great because if you're working for yourself and you're doing things job by job like Mm -hmm. as freelance or as gigs you know having all those people as potential people like to refer jobs to you is really important too because they could be a source of new work Like, I know this guy, and he does this thing.
1: Absolutely. A source of new work, a reference, or Mm -hmm. even if they're just talking about you amongst their colleagues and peers, that means there's buzz about you. I loved the parallel between doing home improvement and interior design and muraling. Mm -hmm. Because it is really physical, laborious work. And I can see why he feels... It's so comfortable and familiar. After the first Ace Hotel one where he was crying, which I can relate to that too. (laughs) (laughs) But I do feel strongly about the way design can influence atmosphere, can spark dialogue, can really build connection. And he's doing that with his murals, I think, in a really powerful way. I think it's super cool. And his social experiments.
0: Yeah, I think that was really interesting, too, that he did those and they went viral because it was kind of the perfect storm of launching something like that. Mm -hmm. I think that was brave and also risky and a little out there, but it really paid off for him.
1: Yeah, I think he learned a lot about himself in the process, too, and I think the more you can learn about yourself, the more comfortable
0: you can be. Being vulnerable and being willing to expose your vulnerability to others so that others can relate to that vulnerability. That's huge.
1: It's huge. And it's an act of generosity, but it's also an act of courage.
0: Yeah, it's totally risky, but it paid off for him. And so I think that's part of the lesson to somebody who might be doing safe work all the time, that... It's okay to take risks and to step out of your comfort zone to just see what happens
1: and what he learned about other people and how they related to his vulnerability in that process. And that whole connection thing, that's
0: that's the jackpot. And I love his inclusion project that he's working on and I appreciate him being an advocate for diversity in all the things that he does, whether it be on a panel or attending something to ask the question that not a lot of other panelists would normally ask. Usually they just leave it up to the organizer to like handle making the right decisions about who to include. But I love that he's very aware of that.
1: Anybody who's willing to stick their neck out a little bit and say, hey, have you thought about this? And in order for me to be involved, This is a requirement I have and I'll help you fulfill it. It's a pretty great, Mm -hmm. great thing to do.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's really important. I mean, even you and I are, we are responsible too, because we need to make sure that the voices that we and the stories that we tell are really interesting and diverse. And so that's something that we think about too.
1: Yeah. Think about it all the time. Hey, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Timothy's work.
0: You can also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love hearing from you. And if you like Clever, please, please write us a review on iTunes or tell your friends, tell your neighbors, forward our newsletter to somebody. It really does help us a lot.
1: This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navarres with music by L1011. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.